And so it was my family here, Dana's family here, um, this group of friends, our, our support system that just made it the most perfect timing to give us some confidence to say, okay, let's get married. Let's start this life together. We're not on our own, right? We have help. We could do this. And we weren't parents at the time, but we knew we wanted to get to that point eventually. And we just had so much confidence in, you know, that this journey wasn't just about us, right? It was about the people who who were there with us that we surrounded ourselves with. And, you know, all of that together really kind of brought us to a place where we're super confident in just moving forward with our life. Hey there, my friends. It's Dr. Anthony Balduzzi, founder here at the Fit Father Project and the Fit Mother Project. I want to welcome you to another episode here on the podcast where today we're joined by Harry LaRusso, the founder of the Outlier Fund, which is a nonprofit center around bringing hope to people affected by glioblastoma, a particular kind of brain cancer. And Harry has an incredible story that he's going to share with us today. It's a story of tragedy. It's a story of triumph. And he's obviously here with us. So there is a happy and strong ending to this. And without taking too much thunder from Harry's story, it was a number of years ago in March of 2019 when he was diagnosed with glioblastoma cancer at age 33. And it was a sudden and life-changing event for him and his family that left him scrambling for answers. And after a lot of research, he was eventually enrolled in a clinical trial that treated his cancer with some really powerful therapies that he's going to share with us. And I want to put this into context that at least what Dr. Google says is the average life expectancy of the diagnosis of glioblastoma is 14 to 16 months. Well, it's four years now later, and Harry has no evidence of the disease since his therapy. Uh, and he's gone on to have a family, to run marathons, and of course, to run the Outlier Fund with his wife, Dana, where they're basically spreading a lot of awareness for this wonderful mission. And the fact that no matter what challenges you're going through, we can definitely learn a lot from this man who went through some tremendous challenges when it comes to brain cancer. And of course, he's no stranger to doing hard things, and he loves spending time with his wife and his two-year-old son, Wiley. So Harry, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to hear your story, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here with you. So as I mentioned before we actually hit record, like uh, we've had a lot of cancer in my family and we've even had the experience of brain cancer in my family. So this really hit home when I had the opportunity to hear what was going on for you. So take us back a few years ago to where your life was like. Like, honestly, it could be the day you figured out that you were diagnosed with this cancer a couple of days before, like set the stage and, and, and begin to tell us the story. And then of course, all the beautiful things that came out of something that was probably one of the most challenging experiences of your life. Yeah, I love going back to the day I was diagnosed because it was just so unique. Up until that point, I was your healthy 33-year-old. Um, normal day in my life. And, you know, actually, I'll go back even further. I, I was born and raised in South Florida, and I, I went to a really incredible high school. And I always cite the high school because it set the tone for my life. Um, I went to St. Thomas Aquinas. It's, mm -hmm. it's a powerhouse for athletes and academics. And, you know, I earned a full scholarship to a division two school in, in West Virginia where I played quarterback. I started for three years nice. of, of the four years that I was there. And, and, you know, I, I tell that story because up until that point in my life, I've never broken a bone, never had an injury. And I was incredibly athletic and healthy. And, you know, I, I, I graduated, I moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, I met my, at the time at 33, she was my fiance. Um, we were recently engaged. Um, 
and you know, it leads me into the night I was I was diagnosed and normal normal day for me. I, I had a normal day at work, ended up at the gym after work. Um, my sister was actually visiting in town and it's amazing. I could tell you every detail from that night. Came home, cooked dinner, could tell you every ingredient that I cooked that night that was part of that meal. And towards the end of the meal, um, I started to feel some fatigue. And, um, you know, I said to my wife and my sister, hey, I'm going to head upstairs. Just give me a couple minutes. I'll be back down. And I remember getting to the top of the stairs and telling myself, okay, you know, I got out of cleanup, which I was, I was excited to kind of sneak my way out mm-hmm. and upstairs. And, and all of a sudden, that fatigue, when I got upstairs, started to feel like nausea that I was going to get sick. And in the moment, I knew I had to find the bathroom. Um, but I couldn't recall in the home that I've owned for years now at this point where the bathroom was on the second floor. Hmm. And, um, you know, I slowly started to feel my body shut down and what would eventually an episode that would be diagnosed as a seizure, um, which, you know, is typically the, the first symptom outside of headaches of uh, a brain tumor, especially glioblastoma. And, you know, I went to scream out for my wife because I knew at that time I was going to need some help and I couldn't get any words out, um, wasn't able to communicate and kind of slowly started to sink down the wall that I was leaned up against. And, you know, I was really fortunate that she heard me and came upstairs. And, um, you know, it's amazing. A lot of people who I've connected with who have had similar episodes have lost consciousness during this. And I'm incredibly grateful for not losing consciousness. I could tell you every detail from that night, which is pretty unique. And for me, it gives me a, I think, a different perspective. Um, because I remember her bring, carrying me, my wife, who's you know significantly smaller than I am, carrying me down the steps and getting me into the car. And um, it was pouring rain that night, and she rushed me to the local ER and couldn't get any help. She got me into a wheelchair herself and pushed me up the on ramp into the hospital. And you know the thing that's very consistent in most stories similar to this is how fast everything moves, mm-hmm. and things were moving a million miles an hour. I was in an MRI before I could, you know, even um, grasp what was going on, Um, moved right into a biopsy. They came back and said, you know, we fear it's a brain tumor. We just don't know how severe. And then once the results came back from the biopsy, they confirmed it was in fact glioblastoma. So from the time you had the seizure at home, when did you, like how quickly until you received the glioblastoma diagnosis? 24 hours. It was amazing. Man, talk about a rock in your entire world. Completely healthy my whole life up until this point. Never broken a bone, never had more than a common cold. <laughs> um, you know, truthfully, that evening, I thought I, I, I thought I had food poisoning. And, and, you know, once I obviously got that news, I found out it was much more severe. Okay, so, so where, does you, where does your mind go? Where does your family go? Like, what happens in your kind of like family, emotional and mental environment? in that beginning of time of getting some kind of diagnosis like this. And I want to ask for people, certainly who may receive a cancer diagnosis or a family member who does, but any other kind of like sudden shocking health related news, like where did you go? What was it like processing in that those early times? So, you know, for me, I, I was laying in the hospital bed and my uh, fiance, Dana, came in at the time. And all I thought about was how difficult it would be to attach your life to something like this. <laughs> and, you know, I pulled her aside. I said, I understand how severe this diagnosis is. I understand 
the prognosis that comes along with this and the life expectancy. And in fact, minutes earlier, we asked the uh, neuro-oncologist, we said, hey, you know, what's remission look like with this type of cancer? And he turned to me and said, there's no such thing. And, you know, I'm pretty goal-oriented. So I said, okay, well, what's my goal? And he said, your goal should be to live long enough to see a cure. And, you know, there it kind of really sunk in how severe the diagnosis was. And I pulled my fiance Dana aside and it's pretty incredible. I, and it's a testament to the type of person she is. Mm-hmm. I said to, to her, you know, look, we don't have to do this. We're engaged. We don't have to get married. I gave her the out. I'm like, I understand how hard it would be to attach your life to something like this. And she looked at me and she said, not only are we getting married, we're getting married sooner. And, um, it was March 21st when I ended up, you know, having this, uh, seizure and this diagnosis. And we actually got married for the first time, March 29th, just a a little bit over a week later. Oh my God. I mean, and I say that intentionally, that is, uh, I'm just really feeling into your wife's heart and her character and how she really stepped up for you in that moment. I mean, what a gift you received. And I, I hope as we go through this story that we get to hear the through line of her love and obviously how that's been a big impact in your healing. But I mean, what, what, what were you feeling at the time when, you know, you get this response back and then you're buried a week later? Like what's, what was your experience? Like, like having her say, yes, I'm all in. And how did you receive that? And like, where, where'd your mindset go to once you're like married and still have this potentially terminal diagnosis? Sure. Um, You know, it was, I'll tell you the thing that Dan and I both lean on is our support system that people were surrounded by. And what really in, you know, encouraged me to just be so optimistic was when I came out of that biopsy, um, I was surrounded by all of my friends and family. And it was really unique, you know, because obviously I'm here living in Pittsburgh. I'm from South Florida originally, where everybody I grew up with, my family's still there. And I came out and they were all around the hospital bed. And I think that was something where, you know, um, getting out of the hospital to walk out my front door and find 10 of my closest best friends that I grew up with, Airbnb, the house across the street from me. And they said, we're here as long as it takes until you don't need us any longer to be local. And so it was my family here, Dana's family here, um, this group of friends, our, our support system that just made it the most perfect timing to give us some confidence to say, okay, let's get married. Let's start this life together. We're not on our own, right? We have help. We could do this. And we weren't parents at the time, but we knew we wanted to get to that point eventually. And we just had so much confidence in, you know, that this journey wasn't just about us, right? It was about the people who, who were there with us that we surrounded ourselves with. And you know, all of that together really kind of brought us to a place where we're super confident in just moving forward with our life as we had planned. It's really beautiful. I mean, that you were surrounded by so much love and support. And I know at least from even from a immune system standpoint, we know that people that feel like they have greater social connections and support have a more robust, higher functioning immune system than those who feel isolated and alone. So there's a lot of factors. I, obviously, you went and you found a therapy, and I want to get into that next. But there's just so much goodness that you know huddled around there, and it, it kind of makes me think that it's a little bit of a shame. Like it's a shame that we 
as humans have this tremendous capacity to show up for one another. And obviously, in the most extreme of circumstances like yours, your family and your friends showed up big. And I also think that there's a lot of us in in many ways that are kind of like have a less overt but silent suffering kind of situation that's not a, like a brain cancer diagnosis, but you know, it's something else that they don't get to receive the blessing of that tremendous support. And I, I just see that as a massive element um, in the beginning of your story and setting this soil for your desire to become an outlier, to beat this thing and to do this in a big together sense. So awesome. So where do you go from there? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you got to start looking for answers of like, what do you do when you have this kind of diagnosis? So like, how do you start to unpack that part of it? So, you know, it blew my mind after being diagnosed how people across my life and, and you know, part of that support system, um, all of a sudden were cancer experts. Everyone <laughs> knew the exact path, the exact treatment, the right hospital, the right surgeon. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what we did. We, we kind of built a team with my mother, um, my wife, uh, and my sister-in-law. And we said, okay, this is the group of decision makers and we're going to set the plan for, you know, where we move forward. And we said, okay, what do we agree on the most? The thing we agree on the most is what will give me the best chance at fighting this disease? It starts at surgery. So we need to find the best surgeon. And, you know, for us, we were ready to travel anywhere in the world. Uh, Houston, there's a great, you know, operation there, Ohio, um, here in Pennsylvania is fantastic. We looked at a surgeon in Paris and ultimately um, I set up a meeting at UPMC Hillman Cancer Center here in Pittsburgh and um, Dr. Nanduka Monkular. Um, fast forward to today, I still credit him for saving my life. Uh, he walked into the room and we shared this list with him and, you know, he had such a level of confidence to him and he wasn't arrogant. You know, he, he went through this list and he commended the list. And, you know, he said, basically, he, he gave us his honest opinion. There was no sales pitch. You know, he said, if he had the opportunity to uh, operate on himself, if he was in this scenario, he would. And, you know, he shared to us most importantly, why he got into the field, that he, you know, has uh, personal loss in his family uh, at a young age that really drove him and motivated him to save others that are in this position mm-hmm. and help extend lives. And, I walked out of the room and I looked at my family and we all said, that's, that's the doctor. That is the person that we trust to remove this tumor from my brain and give me the best life expectancy moving forward. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, two, um, average life expectancy, excuse me, average diagnosis, age of diagnosis for this disease. I was incredibly young, almost half of what the average was, you know, I was in my early thirties. So I knew I wanted to find a trial, an aggressive trial, like throw the kitchen sink at it. I could hold it. I, I could, you know, I could tolerate anything that we think would help um, remove this tumor and give me the best life expectancy moving forward. And it just so happened, let's call it a Monday, that I walked into Hillman Cancer Center. Um, a trial that fit me perfectly opened up days earlier. It was, it was incredible. And it was literally everything I could ask for. It was an aggressive surgery that um, at surgery implemented a virus that went after remaining cancer cells in the tumor bed, um, went on to, you know, chemo, radiation, immune therapy, and 
And, you know, I'm just so grateful for being in that moment. And, you know, I think that whether it was a higher power, whatever led to that experience that I walked in at the perfect time and landed on a trial that fit me perfectly. And I truly believe is why I'm still here with you today. For sure. Oh, I mean, I'll tell you this based on my life experience and what I've gone through and what I've seen, like I am a hundred percent the firmest believer in the presence of a guiding hand and higher power in this. And for me, it just seems too perfect or perfectly perfect that there's this trial that opens up that you have this amazing experience with someone who's actually like the cancer, you know, center nearest to your home at that time. Right. So it's like, it all fits really well together. Um, and I, I think another theme that comes out is I think in life, sometimes we make decisions out of, out of the root of fear. And sometimes we make decisions out of the root of trust. And it seems to me in this moment, you made this decision out of a root of like intuition and trust. You're like, that's my guy. I just feel it. He said the right things, but more importantly, you just felt his presence, let alone the alignment with the trial and all these things going forward. I mean, you must've gone into this feeling like, okay, this is flowing. We can do this. And you're in a state of hope and you go through the therapy and you're here now. So it obviously worked. So what was it like in the, in the period of recovering after that? And I guess in the, in the, in the real, the ring of the therapies for whether we could talk about the actual surgery, the recovery from surgery, chemo, radiation, immune therapies, like what'd you learn about going through all that, that like lessons that, you know, apply into other areas of your life. And just let's talk about that experience in a little more depth. Yeah, of course. And, you know, going back to what you just said, a learning experience for me, I was 33. I was flying through life. Everything was on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And, you know, when I mentioned that when you're going through a diagnosis like this, everything starts to move so fast. So to help make those important decisions, we really worked on slowing things down, right? Being more present, being more in the moment. And that's something that has played a major role in my recovery. Um, being able to accept slowing things down, slowing life down, being more present. Some days post-treatment, um, wins for me were getting out of bed and putting a shirt on. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the side effects for cancer treatment is fatigue. Mm-hmm. And that was really the major, you know, uh, kind of uh, hurdle that I had to get over was that that level of fatigue. and. You know, again, it goes back to, and I'll probably say it so many times during our discussion, but the people you surround yourself with, um, I put people in my life that forced me to get up and move. And, and, you know, my wife and I had a thing where every single morning after I got out of the hospital, I would get up and make the bed. And that was not my thing before, but I would get up and make the bed. And once the bed was made in my house, that meant we were not getting back into it till it was time to go to bed. And it forced me to get out and get active. And, I'll, I'll tell you too, one of the most important decisions I've ever made in my life when it came to, you know, recovery and re- rehabilitation. Um, I was having a really hard time based off of where the tumor was located, getting my hands, feet and body and, and mind back on the same page. Mm-hmm. And so I reached out to a local trainer in the Pittsburgh area, a boxing coach, actually. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, this is an absolute long shot. You might not even reply to this email. This is my current situation. Something tells me the way punches are numbered, that the activity of boxing, getting your hands, feet, body, mind, all working together again could really benefit me right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I started working with him. He, he responded to me that day. I had stitches in my head still. We went a week <laughs> later. The program was tailored just to exactly where I was at the time of diagnosis, 
we've continued to scale it since where I boxed with him at 9 a.m. this morning. And it's one of the best decisions I've ever made for myself. That's really cool. I mean, super cool. Like a great intuition that that exact activity would be would be so good for you. And it's obviously become a deeper passion than even just the physical therapy benefit of it, of of how it's been uh, just pivotal to your healing. And I'm also pulling out some lessons for people who are going through hard things. It, it seems like one, you took like small framed actions like the bed thing. It was like a commitment every single day to urge you forward into this energy of like of growing, not receding. And then two, you found something to pour yourself into, like an action, a ritual, like the training with the coordination. I, I'm sure you got back into the athlete's mindset quite a bit that you had from high school and college, where now you had like almost like a little bit of a training plan or something to work. And when you have somebody in a work, it allows you to channel your energy productively. And then you start to see some gains, which I'm sure were slow and incremental. Does that track with kind of your process? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I remember growing up, I had friends that uh, played baseball or were wide receivers on the football team. And I used to watch this drill they did where they would write things on a tennis ball and they would bounce it and try to catch it, but get their their mind and their eyes to identify the words on the ball prior to catching it. Yeah. So one of the first things my wife bought me post-diagnosis was this container of blue racquetballs. And she wrote down all my family members' names on it. <laughs> and I would sit there basically all day long trying to bounce them, getting my vision back, you know, identifying the names on the ball prior to catching it. And it was kind of a little drill that just really helped me put things back together. Hey, it's Dr. Ray. I want to quickly pause this episode to thank you for listening to this Fit Father podcast. I am just blown away at how amazing this podcast has become. I had no idea when I started FFP around 10 years ago that it would grow into such an impactful mission. And I want to let you know that I am so grateful to be connected to you in this lifetime. And on behalf of me and my entire team, we are so grateful to be in your life, helping you get and stay healthier for your family. That's what I want to share. Just some gratitude from my heart to yours. Let's get back to today's episode. Okay, so like how long, you know, now we're kind of like, I want to get a little bit to like to present day. So it's been around four years since since the time you got diagnosed. Is that true? Yeah, just over four years. Okay. And so at what point in this journey did you feel like you were actually like really much more physically able and well, like past the I'm recovering to, man, I think I'm like, I'm back or at least back in a big enough way to start doing some more intense stuff. And I want to help the bridge the gap because you've done things like run a marathon and do some off-road races and, and other pursuits that I think are very relevant to see that you didn't just like beat this cancer, but you also, you know, got back to a very high level of performance. So kind of fill us in this next transition stage, please. Yeah, of course. So um, cancer altogether from diagnosis to treatment to, to, to being on the other side, emotionally, physically, it's tough. And the thing I found in that area of, of difficulty is how much I, I connected with it, how much I loved challenging myself. And so, you know, I was sitting on the couch one day and I'll start with the marathon. And, and um, I heard a, a recording on, on TV, it was a commercial that said the Pittsburgh Marathon was being hosted May 1st. And I sat there, I'm like, okay, I turned to my wife and said, I'm going to run that marathon. What month was it when you saw this? So people have context. Okay. So it would have been 
was probably about five months prior. Okay. And, and, you know, I saw the advertisement. I turned to my wife and I said, I'm going to run that marathon. She said, yeah, maybe like the 5k or, or the half. And I said, no, I'm going to run the full. And, and, you know, she said, you're not a runner. And I said, that's okay. You know, we'll figure this out. I'm going to get a training regimen. We'll make it work. And, you know, I think that, you know, a couple of things I don't want to sidetrack, but the thing about glioblastoma and brain cancer for me that I find very unique is yes, it's on paper, it's a devastating diagnosis, but it's something that at the end of the day, I could look you in the eyes and tell you I'm grateful for. Mm-hmm. And I'd tell you why. It's because the amazing people that have come into my life that otherwise I probably wouldn't have met without this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And one of them is a distance coach, a running coach here in Pittsburgh that through the boxing coach I was connected with. Mm-hmm. And he reached out over text one day, said, hey, I heard you're not a runner, got caught up with your story. I'd love to work with you. And so, you know, him and I started with small runs, three miles a week and, you know, just kind of continued to scale and, you know, I'll tell you the other unique side of this is, um, you know, I'm sure we'll get to this, but my wife and I eventually started a nonprofit to help um, kind of bring awareness and hope around this type of diagnosis and this disease. And we thought, hey, let's connect the two. Let's mm-hmm. become a fundraising team for the marathon. And, you know, I reached out to, to the marathon, to the city of Pittsburgh, and I said, I want to become a fundraising team. Mm-hmm. They said, this is your first year. We don't know. And we went back and forth and we finally got approved to be a fundraising team. And they said, look, to be able to do this, you have to raise $20,000 and most importantly, find 30 other runners. Well, I'm not a runner. To find 30 other runners was going to be very difficult. And, you know, after months of training and recruiting and reaching out to friends and family, uh, I eventually ran the the full 26.2 miles. I finished with a great time, just over uh, eight minutes a mile. Um, But most importantly, I was able to recruit over 60 runners and we raised just about $65,000, We actually finished sixth overall of all the teams. And there were some major fundraising teams. Wow. We were sixth overall in funding. So it's truly incredible. Yeah, really. Really incredible. And I also am hearing another undercurrent is one thing that you did that many people don't do when faced with adversity is you embraced it and you started to create with it. Like, I think when people have problems, often we, we resist it. Like we wish it were different or we, we try to like, you know, we hold guilt around it or we're anger around it, but you really did the opposite. You're like, this has happened. Like, what can we create here and what is possible? And I think it's like, we can talk about an expansionary mindset, which you very much embody in the contractionary mindset, which is when people get really walled off or negative or focus on the pain. And because you focus on the greatness, like not only did you run this marathon that a lot of people probably had doubts that was possible, but you crushed it from a, from a engagement standpoint on helping so many people come with you and you raised a ton of money. So that's amazing. I mean, a a testament to what's possible. And I don't think even you knew it was possible when you said, I'm going to run that marathon on the couch, but you had an expansionary mindset. So it's a good reminder that a lot more is possible than we think. I'll tell you one more thing too, which was really unique about that was how many others connected themselves to that experience, mm-hmm. not necessarily battling something like a cancer diagnosis, but I'll tell you, well, one of the runners, for example, might've been drinking more than he should have and yeah. had a baby on the way and said, you know what? I've never ran at all in my life, but I'm going to run a half marathon and I'm going to raise a ton of money. And he was one of our leading fundraisers and he did an incredible job and finished his first half marathon. 
And most importantly, I have to give credit here. The, the MVP of the entire event was without a doubt my wife, because to be able to scale from, and this is not for a pat on my back, but not being a runner to running 26.2 miles, it was a strict regimen of, of night runs and early morning runs. And once again, my wife stepped up and she took care of our house and made sure, made sure we didn't skip a beat. And I say house, meaning at the time we had our two-year-old son. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, she was taking care of him and our family and, and our house and, and, you know, giving me the ability to chase that goal of running the Pittsburgh Marathon. Well, I think this is going to be a nice segue to, to speak about your wife and then the outlier fund and what you're doing with the nonprofit. Um, I think before we get there, I kind of want to just like exchange this note to you from like we, the people, and it's thank you for living your life in such a way that it is inspiring to others to raise themselves up by watching you raise yourself up. I think that's like really a lot of the great value from these heroes journey stories like yours is because I see and hear your story and I know everyone listening does as well. And we also see ourselves and our version of like that hero story. And like, it's like, I wonder if I could live just like a little bit more like Harry. And I think that's something that you're giving a gift to the world. And obviously, you know that on some level because you created this fund and also alongside your wife. So please speak to us about the vision, what you're creating, like what's in the future, what you guys do with the fund initiatives that you do and all of that. Sure. So, you know, for us, I, I think, you know, my wife and I being 33 at the time, um, I like to say we always were very in tune with with everything going on. We kept our ear to the street. We were, you know, very involved. And there is no reason why in our position, we heard the word glioblastoma for the first time while I was laying on a hospital bed being diagnosed with it. And that didn't sit well with us. And, and you know, I, I actually said to her in the hospital that we need to do something. We need to find a way to, to make a change. And, you know, it really started day one. I received a phone call um, from someone who was really close to me in my life. And he actually went online and, and he read, of course, the first thing that comes up when you Google glioblastoma, because everyone Googles glioblastoma when they hear that word, is the life expectancy. And it's grim. And he said to me, he said, you know what? You're going to have to be an outlier. And, and I remember coming home, that word just stuck and it gave me so much hope. And, and I turned to Dana, I said, we're going to start this nonprofit. We're going to call it the outlier fund. And we're going to that night filed, filed for the 501c3 and got set up. And, you know, since then, our mission is really just to, you know, change the narrative regarding the disease, bring more hope to those who are impacted by it and really help raise funds to drive research and studies to eventually find a cure. It's powerful. Powerful that we now have a voice, your voice out there, sharing more awareness for that. And I also am continually impressed as you share at how quickly you and your wife took all of this energy and started creating with it. I mean, it's like between the marriage starting the foundation, getting your friends and family, the getting into the research trial, boxing coach, running the marathon, having a kid, which I want to talk to next about you being a father throughout all this. Like, I mean, this is a big couple of years. I mean, I feel like you lived a decade and like maybe two decades in about four years and um, amazing. So 
you know, this is the Fit Father and Fit Mother Project podcast. So people listening to this, especially at this point, you know, are most likely parents and they have kids that they love at home. Um, talk to me about your journey starting a family with your wife, especially with everything that's going on, like what you've learned, what you've what you've gained and learned from being a dad now, uh, and also how your experience with the cancer kind of has like shaped your perspectives on fatherhood and life and all of that. So, uh, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to uh, share this because we're very open about our path to becoming parents. I think it's different. It's definitely different than what we expected it would be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I have to say, I, I go back to that initial stage of being diagnosed when you have to kind of plan who's your surgeon, um, what, what trial are you going to be part of? Where are you going to take treatment at? One thing that no one hands you a playbook for is how to become a parent in the middle of a cancer diagnosis like this, especially one that this is this severe. And so, um, in fact, my sister-in-law, I remember the moment she turned to us and she said, look, Harry, this might be an uncomfortable conversation, but pre-treatment, I think you need to go to the sperm bank and take out some space and make a deposit. Mm -hmm. And if you would have asked me any time in my life, if that would have been somewhere I would have ended up, I would have told you absolutely not. And that's kind of the unique thing about this journey is there's been so many firsts and that was definitely a first for me. So I uh, took her advice and went to the sperm bank. I remember that experience and and made my deposit and went on with my day. <laughs> and and so um, long story short, because of the treatment, because of the you know immune therapy and the chemotherapy and the drugs that were put into my body, when my wife and I you know sat down and said we're ready to become parents, I was not able to naturally have a child at that time. And so. Um, because of the help of the hospital here, same one that I received cancer treatment from, um, we went the natural course of IUI, mm -hmm. and uh, eventually we were welcomed a beautiful baby boy who is now two years old, and his name's Wiley. Can you explain IUI for for everyone who doesn't know the specifics? Yeah, so it's it's a supported pregnancy where um, they, you know, we worked with a fertility doctor who eventually um, it took us three rounds the first time where they would take my sample and um, process it through Dana. And, um, you know, everything had to be timed and calculated. And, you know, it was done in the environment of a hospital room and, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, took, took the, I guess you could say, took the work out of it for us. And, um, you know, we gave a, a, just, it was a beautiful pregnancy to a healthy baby boy. Nice. And your son, Wiley, he's two now. That's great. So what's it, what's it been like being a dad? It, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Hmm. And, you know, I, I take so much pride in being a father. I've always wanted to be a father. Um, at this point in my life, I pride myself on relationships, hmm. on people I meet. It's the most valuable thing in my life. And the most valuable relationship I have is the one with my son. Um, you know, we grow together every single day. And I'll share the second half of that story. Um, my wife and I recently decided that we were ready to pursue having a second child. And the first thing we did was tap back into those samples. And, you know, we tried for uh, five times or not successful with the samples. Go back to the idea of you and I initially talking about something higher, something more important yeah. than, you know, us here. And we said, you know what, we're past the threshold of, of not being able to try naturally. Let's give it a shot. 
And um, my wife is currently 12 weeks pregnant, um, not VIUI versus, yeah. versus a natural route. And we have a uh, baby girl on the way due in February. Wow. Absolutely beautiful. That is uh, blessings for your journey. Um, and this next journey, let's like, wow, like a chapter is closing and opening and opening. It's what a stack of experiences. And now to have two kids, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I'm really happy for you. Thank you very much. I want to ask you, so when your son Wiley and your daughter are like young teenagers, what are you going to tell them about this experience? Like if you could give them like some, some lessons or like kind of like hallmark pithy quote things that you learned, you know, the dad wisdom, what would you tell them about this experience that would benefit them in their lives and how you'd want them to approach problems and, and, and stuff like that? Yeah, of course. And, and I'll go back to when I was initially diagnosed. One of the things that when, when you hear, hey, average life expectancy is this, my mind immediately went to, I need to have a finish line, right? A place that I need that when I'm having a bad day or I'm struggling that I tap into and say, okay, one day I'm going to reach that point. And if I reach that point, I've made it, right? That's, that's the, the point of my journey where I could be satisfied. Mm-hmm. And that moment is holding Wiley's child. And, you know, at the time, the thought wasn't Wiley. It was always to become a grandparent. Wow. Because if I become a grandparent, it means that I raised this healthy child who eventually went on to find their person and, and had their own child. And I get the opportunity to meet that child. That probably puts me somewhere in my 60s. Yeah. That's a really good life, you know, while battling this type of diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how it affects me in the present day is exactly that. It's just being present. And I've, I've put certain things in place. Um, I'll share this with you. I, I record a video uh, typically once a week mm-hmm. and just with a life lesson that I learned and I mm-hmm. store it away on my computer. And, you know, I hope to one day sit with Wiley when he can actually comprehend those videos <laughs> laugh about them. But if in case I'm not here, he'll have those lessons. That's you know, cool. the ability to be present, to connect with people, to be open and responsive and to be kind and, and you know, to take risks and challenges. And, and um, you know, I think those are some of the most important values that I've drawn from this diagnosis. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, the presence and also just the making those, making taking the time to do those little things that will be very valuable into the future for your relationship is, is super beautiful. And I want to ask you on the, on the visualization of the finish line you created with you becoming a grandfather, is that something you visited like frequently? Is this like an everyday you're thinking about this finish line or is it something that you kind of like set and it's in the back of your mind or was it very much like a present focused, bringing it to mind often? So, you know, I think there's times throughout a diagnosis like this where you can't help but find yourself discouraged. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've, tapped a lot into meditation and journaling, which has played a major role in, in my life would have, you know, prior to this diagnosis, if you'd asked me if I would have ever owned a, a pen and a notebook and journaled, I would have probably shrugged a shoulder at it. And I think, you know, this past week, I hit my 12th notebook that I've journaled through since being diagnosed. Therapy, going through therapy, which is one of, um, you know, a priority of my schedule that I hold, you know, very close that I don't miss. And and, you know, just the ability to be vulnerable has been so important to me. And, and it's amazing. My wife and I, you know, if she was here on camera, would both tell you that today, right now, 
we are living the best life that we could possibly ask for. And we have this saying in our house that, you know, we had to go there to get here mm-hmm. and, and go there is, is that dark place of this diagnosis. Yeah. And we've took so much away from it. We've learned so much that we could apply in every single little moment of our life that, you know, had to go there to get here. Here's the present day, which is we're so grateful for it. And yeah. it's better than we could have imagined pre-diagnosis. Yeah. And I'm very confident in feeling and saying that the fact that you two, you and your wife are here together in this as such a united, connected front is one of the reasons why it feels so meaningful and that you're living your best life. Like, were you not sharing this experience with her and you were just a single guy that beat the cancer diagnosis? It doesn't seem like it has this full effect. And I think the second thing that come from that is what what's really impresses me about your wife is like, not all quote unquote problems are ones that originate like in our bodies. Like she took this on and I don't know if she saw it as a problem, but more as like a mission, more as like her life path. And like, she consciously chose to ride with you through this and to create with you through this. And like, that's amazing. You know, like it's a lot of, you can easily find the energy to get very passionate about glioblastoma when you have it. And then certainly with the man that you love has it, like she got on board, but I just see like the conscious creation of you two together seems really, really powerful. And obviously everything that you're doing, family creation, nonprofit is is because you two are together focused. So I see that. And I also think the lesson I want to share with everyone is insofar as you can find somebody, whether it's in our communities or someone in your friends and your family, to have that together connected experience with, the deeper, the better, like it's going to create a lot more meaning in whatever challenge, obstacle, or, or hero's journey that you're currently walking. Now, I want to ask you a little bit about something a little more logistical towards the end of our conversation here. And that's the fact that you have a unique position in that you you get brain scans very often as a part of being in that trial every like three to four months. And so, you know, a lot of people are freaked out about different kinds of medical scans. And you've actually coined this term, well, I, at least I heard it the first time, of scan scanxiety, like when people get afraid of the medical screening. Talk to us about screening, your thoughts on it. Is, is, is it important? Like, why should we care? And like, when we do have to get medical stuff done, what have you learned to make it a more enjoyable process? It, it's critical. And, you know, I was, I grew up in the mindset of avoiding anything in the hospital or going to the doctor. And, you know, now my life really depends on it. Um, being able to participate in a scan, I've lost track of how many times I've been in the MRI at this point. And, you know, for me, it's something that is done on a schedule of every eight weeks. And, you know, I've spent the last four years coming up with four years on that schedule. And scanxiety is, is something that is, you know, a, a level of anxiousness that I never thought I would have to deal with. So I've had to put so many practices in place to both um, manage that anxiety leading up to the scan. Important while I'm in the machine, you know, you're in this tube for 45 minutes and then after the scan, when um, you're waiting for the results, and I've had the opportunity, um, Bear Pharmaceuticals, to work with their incredible team um, and just have dialogue on this. The thing that I connected most with them is how much they value the patient perspective. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, I, as the patient, bringing in certain practices, like I'll tell you my routine on scan days, I am a coffee drinker and I, I live by coffee. I don't have coffee in the morning. Um, you know, I try to book the earliest scan 
that morning. So I don't have those jitters, those caffeine jitters, mm-hmm. or, you know, my mind racing while in the machine. Um, I eat a heavy breakfast knowing that I'm okay to be a little sluggish when you're laying in a machine for 45 minutes. And I'm probably yeah. going to be at the ha- uh, hospital the majority of the day. And I'll tell you the most important thing that my wife and I have done, those scans are obviously planned out. And rather than making that date something that sticks out as like, a, oh no, I can't believe that date's quickly approaching. We've turned that into a day that we celebrate. Mm-hmm. So like when we get out of the hospital, we're waiting for those results to limit the anxiety. We immediately go out to our favorite coffee shop. And then I always take her flowers at our local florist that we have just been with from day one. Um, we have lunch at one of our most favorite cafes. We end up at dinner, um, same restaurant since diagnosis. And what that does is it kind of takes that day that could be a little bit, you know, viewed as one on the calendar that, hey, that's going to be a hard one to like, yeah. hey, I can't wait till that day gets here because we're going to celebrate. And yeah. whenever those, you know, results come through on the scan, typically, you know, it comes in through an app when we're out running around. We just take a moment and reflect on just how grateful we are to be able to have this opportunity to be here together, get the results, and then go out to dinner typically and celebrate. Dang. So cool. There's like, I hope people are starting to think not just like how awesome and happy we are for you guys to have that, but what kind of, of these good rituals and like celebration experiences can we all like bake into our life, even how we're raising our kids? You know, I don't know if the report cards are coming up, like what can we do around this that, you know, that, that creates more joy and celebration in those moments, like powerful lesson. So, um, Harry, this has been an awesome conversation. I mean, like just, I appreciate in this short amount of time to be able to go so deeply into your life, what you've achieved and accomplished and, and what you're, what you're a champion for in the world, along with your wife, please tell people where they can learn more about you connect even deeper. If they want to reach out and said, Hey, I loved you on this podcast, or if they'd like to learn more about the outlier fund and any kind of fundraising efforts you're doing in the future, how can people learn more and connect with what you're doing? I really appreciate the opportunity to just be here today and share this message and my story and, you know, connect with others who have been affected by glioblastoma or just any type of cancer. And, you know, our foundation is theoutlierfund.org. Uh, you can find us on any social media platform at the Outlier Fund. And um, we're always looking to connect with any type of community. Um, so please feel free to reach out. Well, Harry, I got to say, congratulations on where you've gone to. I know this is just like the beginning part of your life story. So I am excited to see where the next parts take you. And I know it's going to be off the basis of so much power, love, perspective, and wisdom that you gain from this hard experience. So I'm grateful to know you. I'm grateful to have hosting this conversation today. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Fit Father Project Podcast. If you love what you heard, please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps spread this show to more men who need this valuable info. To watch full video episodes of this podcast and other motivational videos to inspire your training and more, visit our Fit Father Project YouTube channel. It's free and everything's made for busy guys over 40 like you. Visit youtube.com forward slash fitfatherproject to get access to our entire video library. And finally, if you or someone in your life is interested in becoming a fit father or needs help losing weight, building muscle, and living healthier after age 40, then visit fitfatherproject.com where you can see our proven programs, supplement line for guys 40 plus, and free meal plan and workouts to get you started. 
This is Dr. Anthony Balduzzi signing off. I'll see you in the next episode.